another pot of coffee is brewing. My fifth cup is almost finished, so that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode, The Wedding Day, as much as Griff and I enjoyed recording it for the second time. It's such a fun film, and yeah, I know we found quite a lot to fault with it, but to be fair, that wasn't so much with the film as with the characters in the film. They deserved the criticism. Come on, you find out your sister was sleeping with your fiancé and that's why he called off the wedding and you are fine with it? Yeah, we weren't. Anyway, congratulations for this week have to go to Chance from the amazing Strive, Seek, Find, which is a fantastic podcast released every Monday and certainly gives me a lot of food for thought when I listen to it on a Monday afternoon. He was the only one who correctly guessed from my gift clue that I am going to be talking about 2005's Just Friends. It's yet another film that has a bit of an earworm in it, though it's probably more memorable for the fat suit that Ryan Reynolds had to wear for the earlier incarnation of his character. When it comes to books, I was going to be looking at a new one by a brand new author who kindly sent me a copy, but then I realised that something I hadn't talked about so far in my podcast journey, my favourite reads, was already half written. So that's going to be the topic for this week, the authors and books that I would put at the top of my recommendation list if I was ever asked for it. So I'm just going to give it to you for nothing. Of course, it wouldn't be a week in the coffee household if I didn't talk about what's been happening when it comes to my mental health and how I've been coping with things in general. And I will be talking about the shows and possibly films that I'm going to be adding to my watch list for the week. I am so frustrated that, yet again, this week there are no weird dreams. It seems that whatever dreams I have keep on fading away because I'm being woken up at 4am seriously obscene time, by my incredibly persistent cat. If anyone has any tips, just so you know, on how to stop a cat from scratching at your door at very early times in the morning, just because they want attention, then I would be seriously grateful. You can either DM me on Twitter or Instagram, or send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com. Seriously, she's getting worse, not better. I love her to pieces, I really do, but 4am, I don't want to be having anything to do with her, I don't want to be seeing the rest of my flat, I want to be asleep. I have been having some incredible dreams though, but by the time I wake up for the second time they are gone, or at least just a mere hazy memory. The perfect example of this is last Sunday. I've been looking Being honest, in real life, I have been looking to see if there are any nice flats out there as I'm considering moving, once the pandemic is completely over and it's easy to go and see places. In this dream, I was touring through a brand new flat. It had a kitchen that got all the early morning light as it was west-facing, like my current flat, but the lounge was south-facing, and I'm not quite sure how that worked, but I'm just going to go with it. And when you opened these amazing double doors from the lounge, which, might I add, had a beautifully varnished wooden floor unlike the horrible carpet that I currently have, you were taken out onto a stunning balcony that was more like a generously sized mini garden area. It overlooked the beach to the south, but to the west and east you could see nothing but rooftops. I stood out on this fictional balcony for what felt like ages, just watching the ripples of the English Channel and smelling the salt in the air. I am. I know I'm not alone in absolutely loving that smell. Unfortunately, that is all I can remember, because then, pretty much as though she has an alarm set, Darcy started her crying and scratching at my bedroom door, and I was rudely awakened from my dream tour. Of course, I had hopes that perhaps this dream was inspired by something I'd seen on a website when searching for properties, but when I did my real-life search later on that day, 
I discovered that wasn't the case at all. In fact, there is so little out there, it's ridiculous. The more I look into films I've enjoyed, the more I realise that the mid-2000s were actually quite a good time for a specific type of film. However, when I started to look at the releases for the latter part of 2005 and early part of 2006, there actually wasn't as much as there had been a few months before. It seems that the biggest release of 2005 was dominating the box office and people just didn't want to risk trying to compete with the fourth in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which is actually the last one of the films that I watched in the cinema. Of course, the film I am talking about today is one that would be very at home with films starring Adam Sandler or the American Pie series. The cast at the time was experiencing a high, with Amy Smart having had success for the previous five years in films like Rat Race, Road Trip and Varsity Blues. Chris Klein had found popularity as Paul Metzler in Election with Reese Witherspoon, and then, of course, as Oz in American Pie. Ryan Reynolds' star was just about on the rise. He starred in Van Wilder, Party Liaison, back in 2002, but had yet to find his niche. Sure, he'd been in a few films. He was Hannibal King in the frequently trashed Blade Trinity, though, to be honest, I sort of like it. Shh, don't tell anyone. And he had a cameo in the first Harold and Kumar film. Though, I always lump that film in with the Cheech and Chong films of the late 70s and 80s. But he hadn't really had his breakout moment. Okay, so where was I going with this again? I think I've forgotten. I've lost my train of thought. Must get back on track. This film was marketed as a Christmas film which worked out well in the US, where it was released on the 23rd of November 2005. However, in most other countries, it wasn't actually released until January 2006, a fact I find quite interesting. It came out over here on the 6th, when it was no longer battling for box office credit against films like Harry Potter. Did that make a huge difference to its box office success, though? Not really. I have tried to find the budget, in fact I've done so much searching it's ridiculous, but it's as though someone somewhere is trying to keep it under lock and key. What I do know is that globally it made a rather mediocre $51 million. In 2009 it was released in Italian cinemas for the first time, and a further 111,809, yeah I'm being that specific, was added to the balance. Before I get into the film... (laughs) I've got to go on a tiny little bit of a rant. I really need to say I hate Netflix autoplay. Often, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, I'll be looking at something and it starts to play and then is added to my continuing watching list. I have looked and for the life of me, I cannot find it. There is no no way to switch it off. I keep on having to clear stuff off my list that I didn't even plan to start watching. Seriously, Netflix, get that sorted. Or am I the only person that's annoyed by it? Back to the film. (laughs) Thank you for listening to my brief ranty interlude. So we're all the way back in 1995. I was personally just 21 and Chris Brander, our main character, played by Ryan Reynolds, is 18 overweight with bad 90s hair, braces, and the fashion sense I still have, namely really bad. He's sitting in his bedroom and trying to figure out how to write his message of love to his best friend, Jamie Palomino. It seems that while he's got a very wide designated spot in her best friend car park, he wants to be more. As he's getting ready to go to Jamie's house, where... It's meant to be a little friend gathering with him, Jamie, and their couple friends, Clark and Darla. He is very happily lip-syncing to I Swear by All For One. You know, I swear by the moon and the stars and the sky. And I'm so sorry, I realise I went really, really sharp there. Don't worry. Anyway, he gets ready and cycles over to Jamie's house only to find that there's a massive party going on. It seems that Jamie's parents wanted to throw a party for their daughter's graduation. Some of the lines that are thrown around in this film, especially in this scene, are incredibly double entendre-esque, such as when Clark 
and Chris are talking and he asks where Jamie is and is told that she's in the garage with the whole football team. If this were a Porky's or a Nerds film from the 80s, that would have a far less innocent outcome. Seriously, go and watch one of those films and you'll see exactly what I mean. So Chris goes to get Jamie and they both sit in her bedroom, him clearly nervous and her absolutely full to the brim with hyper energy. He wants out of the friend zone. Pretty much understandably, really. They're interrupted a couple of times while they're talking, first by the captain of the football team, Tim, who is very obvious that he wants to have fun with Jamie and Chris can go wherever. And he treats Chris as though he's invisible. And then Dusty Dinkleman, who now, when I watch this again, actually reminds me a little bit of Aldrich Killian the first time Tony meets him in Iron Man 3. He has been writing a song for Jamie and wants to play it. He's got zero cool and makes so many mistakes that he leaves dejected. Once their interruptions have vanished, Jamie gives Chris a gift. It's a t-shirt that is a little bit tight on Chris's wide frame and it clearly shows where she feels their relationship is. It's a pair of cat astronauts being best friends. Determined that this is not going to deter him, he picks up his yearbook, only to discover that somehow his has been switched with Tim's, which means Tim now has the one with Chris's message to Jamie in it. Following classic teenage torture rules, which this film does seem to kind of regurgitate quite often, at least during the beginning of the film, Tim is standing at the top of the stairs reading Chris's message out to everyone. Humiliated, Chris leaves the house, understandably, only for Jamie to follow him. She tells him, I love you, but then has to spoil it by adding, like a brother. Seriously, being told that by someone you care about stings a lot. I've been there, though in this instance it was obviously, I love you, but you're like a sister. Ouch. As he cycles away from Jamie's house, Chris yells that he'll be someone someday. And now we fast forward 10 years. It's 2005, Chris has made it, he's in LA, he's an executive, has lost all the weight, gained a ton of confidence and is a bit of a player. He's the sort of guy that the old Chris would have hated. His boss, KC, who is played by Stephen Root, I absolutely loved him in Office Space, my sapler, has found the dream client. Samantha James, who was actually modelled, surprisingly, on Paris Hilton. She's a socialite who is very good at creating scandals, but is also looking to make it big in the music world. Chris and Samantha actually have a bit of a history, in that he had a one-night stand with her and she was so rough that he ended up in hospital. Goodness knows what they got up to. Clearly not something any sensible person would want to repeat in a hurry. Anyway, Casey wants Chris to pursue Samantha so that it can represent her and his word as the business owner is law. He's incredibly impulsive and what he says goes, no matter what. When Chris arrives at the recording studio where Samantha is recording, you realise that she is definitely not the sharpest tool in the box. Her voice is pretty awful, though she is deaf to her own faults. She has daddy's money and uses that to get exactly what she wants, whether that's time in a studio or a private jet. We will get there. The producer who is working with her sees Chris and pretty much legs it out of the recording studio, declaring that Samantha is his problem now, which makes me think that she has been a disaster for however long they've been stuck in there. The minute Samantha sees Chris, she is overjoyed, jumping on him and kissing him to the point it looks as though she's really going to do him an injury, especially as he's resisting. I mean, seriously, if you saw this kiss, you, it looks as though she's trying to swallow part of his face. She bites him. Samantha has decided that they're going to take the private jet to Paris. And for a moment, it looks as though they might actually make it. But if you've seen the previews, you know that this is not going to be the case. Feeling hungry, she puts a gourmet ready meal in the microwave, but doesn't bother to take the silver foil off the container. And before Chris and Samantha know it, the plane has been forced to land as the microwave has caught fire. 
And instead of them being somewhere warm or anywhere near France, you know, out of the country, they're in New Jersey, not too far from Chris's childhood home and a place he hasn't seen in 10 years. He at least kept his word on that one. His mum is so happy, and I imagine anybody would be, because normally Chris flies them to LA for the holidays, and now he's shown up on their doorstep. Even though he's with the handsy and pretty, possibly unintentionally rude, Samantha. His younger brother Mike, who we last saw at the obnoxious age of eight, is now 18, and played by Christopher Marquette, who you'll probably recognise more from The Girl Next Door, or maybe Joan of Arcadia, which I absolutely loved. It starred Amber Tamblyn and didn't run for very long. I think she ended up having some kind of weird disease caused by a tick. I think she had Lyme disease that caused her to hallucinate, but I'm getting off track. Mike is a bit... Okay, not quite, not a bit really. He's a full-on pervert. Being stuck in a room with his family and Samantha is definitely too much for Chris, who stands up, tells everyone I'm going to start drinking, and then escapes the house. He heads to the local bar, which the last time he was in town he'd have been too young to frequent, and he bumps into his old school friends Clark and Darla, who are now married with a son, and work together in a dental practice. He is also asked for a $5 loan by Tim, the ex-football captain who is now overweight and balding at 28 and clearly living in his school heyday. Jamie is also there. She's working the bar and noticed Chris when he walked in, but she doesn't want him to see her. So she drops down behind the bar in the hopes that he won't have noticed. But of course, the best laid plans and all that, and it doesn't work. Chris has grown up, he's no longer obviously her chubby best friend, and it's difficult to put someone in a box they no longer belong in. Of course, Samantha has to arrive and ruin absolutely everything, because that seems to be her shtick. She introduces herself as Chris's girlfriend, is clingy, possessive, and absolutely 100% over the top. But then to be fair, this is the kind of role that Anna Faris absolutely thrives in, especially if you sin house bunny or pretty much anything else she's done including mum but still chris gets the opportunity to ask jamie out on a date even though samantha is clinging to him like a limpet it ends up being a day date something he is always advising other male friends to avoid unless they want to be pushed into the friend zone something he has got a large amount of experience with when it comes to jamie that night chris takes a walk down memory lane rereading old letters he wishes he'd sent to Jamie and looking at photos of the two of them together when they were in high school. And the next day, he knows that he needs to ensure Samantha is as far away from him and Jamie as is physically possible when they're in the same town. He asks Mike to look after her and his brother is understandably overjoyed at the proposal. He loves the idea of getting Samantha alone. She's the poster girl on his wall and he pleasures himself to her regularly, as he's not embarrassed to tell her. Determined to make a great first impression, Chris hires a Porsche. To be fair, Porsches are A, not that reliable, and B, I think they're actually pretty ugly. Have you seen the McCann? It looks like the ugly union of a Mini and a Beetle. Anyway, my personal opinion aside, Chris arrives at Jamie's house in a hired Porsche. Her father obviously never really liked him much because he does his best to belittle Chris the moment he arrives, talking about how he was always hanging around Jamie in the hope she'd throw him a bone. Jamie is about as impressed with the Porsche as I am. In other words, not at all. It's fun to see that Chris hates the person he was when he was living at home, a fat teenager, but everyone else is finding the man he's become to be the one that's unbearable. Not sure what his brother will get up to with Samantha, Chris calls Mike, and that ends really badly, but mostly for Samantha. Mike tasers her as she's standing by the railings of the mezzanine at the shopping mall, and she does herself a fair few injuries. And of course, arrogant, diet-driven Chris, who hates his old self, and a lot of what made him that way, has a disastrous date with Jamie, who can't see her friend in the man he's become. 
sitting in the car after he's dropped Jamie off at her house, where she's apparently living with her parents, having returned home to finish training as a teacher, he has a full-on anger moment, which is hilarious. It's probably the funniest bit for me of the film. He's angry with himself, angry at what happened on the date, and Jamie witnesses the entire thing as he's banging his head against the steering wheel and really angry. She's forgotten her gloves and had to come back to the car to get them. Deep down, somewhere, Chris is still the boy who made a fool of himself around his best friend. When Chris arrives home, Mike is waiting for him. It seems that when Samantha fell, she ended up in a lot of pain. She has incredibly unprofessionally wrapped bandages on her head, is eating toothpaste and is high as a kite on Vicodin. Livid and probably still a tad touchy after his bad date, Chris and Mike fight like they're young kids. I mean, I know that I'm a sibling. I've got two siblings myself and I know that I fought with them. We had play fights quite a lot because you can't have that much energy in a house without it exploding somehow. But I don't think I've ever spat in their mouth. No, no, I, I'm, I'm sure I didn't. Might have threatened to dribble in their ear once on my brother's ear, but I never did it, I don't think. And even I, if I had, I wasn't an adult at the time. Chris calls Jamie and tells her that he's not going back to LA yet, so they arrange to go skating. When he left town before, he wasn't very good, partially because of his weight, but while in LA, he's had a lot of chances to practice, so he wants to show off his abilities. Of course, as with everything, that was not going to work out, because this is a comedy. It turns out that the skates he'd broken in as a teen have been thrown out, so he's going to have to hire some, which, as anyone who skates, whether it's on roller skates or ice, will be able to tell you it leads to very bad things. Attempting to show Jamie that he's good, they meet up at the lake with some of Jamie's students. They're probably 10, maybe 11 years old, and they're playing a pickup game of ice hockey. Feeling confident despite being on rentals, Chris agrees to play and ends up being absolutely awful and earning the distrust and disgust of all of Jamie's students. He's so awful that when he decides to get a goal, the puck rebounds and smacks him right in his pretty veneers. Bye-bye good teeth. Chris is definitely proving to be his own worst enemy. When the ambulance shows up because Chris was knocked out cold. It turns out that the suave paramedic is none other than Dusty Dinkleman, who has also improved with age. He's played by Chris Klein. His skin has cleared up, he no longer slouches, he's had a haircut, and he's in a uniform. As Chris watches Dusty, who now goes by the name Dusty Lee, which always sounds weird to me, as I'm sure we had a TV presenter over here called... No, hang on, hang on. She was called Rusty Lee, though to be fair, when I looked her up, Dusty Lee showed as a result. Anyway, that's not the end of Chris's disaster, because before he is finally loaded into the ambulance, and as he's watching Dusty and Jamie flirting, the stretcher he's secured to rolls down a hill and overturns, much to the amusement of all the students. The longer Chris is in New Jersey with his family and his old school friends, the more, like the person he hates, he is becoming. He has to go and see Clark and Darla and ends up having to wear a retainer while his mouth heals. Oh my god. Samantha is such a entitled bitch. She's bored, her phone is broken and she's horny. Something she makes really clear to Mike. Mike is perfect for her though, really. Apart from the fact that he is only 18, he is obsessed with her and as enamoured with her as she is with herself. Could this be considered a parasocial relationship where she has all the power? Chris is happy and sure that he is making progress. Jamie has sent him a get well card, which is fair enough as he did do the injuries while he was with her. Sensing that he needs to change his game up a little bit, he calls and invites her to see the notebook with him. While they're on the phone, she puts him on hold as she answers a call from Dusty. Mike, in the way that a lot of younger siblings do, I have younger siblings, but the most annoying thing they did 
when I was at school was try to get me high while I was studying for my exams by making me a cup of tea they spiked with coffee and marijuana. Needless to say, that didn't work. As the moment I smelt it, oh my God, it was awful. It stank. I knew it was not something I was going to be drinking. And he listens to the call on the extension, calling his brother out for knowing nothing and being an absolute idiot. And to be fair, he's not wrong. Samantha, frustrated and annoyed at being stuck in Hicksville, decides she wants to leave for Paris right away. There's no reason for them to have any delay. Seriously, the only reason is that Chris wants to get with Jamie. Chris agrees, helps her to the Porsche, and at the last minute changes places with his brother, who then promptly drives her to a dive bar for their open mic night. Like, that's not going to end in disaster. Chris knows that he needs to change into the old him, or at least as close to that person as he can get. So at this point we get, instead of the makeover we quite often will get in a rom-com, we get a make-under accompanied by his theme song, I Swear. swear This make-under is interesting. He already has the retainer, so now it's just a case of getting the clothing right. And he's not wrong when he announces that his old wardrobe is like the Michael Bolton starter kit. Oh wow, that jumper is just so 1990s, it's so bad. He's downstairs waiting for Jamie to come and pick him up to go to the movies and wondering why she's a little late when she finally arrives. It turns out that as it's just a friend thing, Dusty would also be great company. Dusty, where do I start? There is something just not quite right about him. He invites Chris's mum to go along with them to the cinema nothing like making it uncomfortable for the competition. It's obvious that the film is not one for him. To be completely honest here, 100% honest, I've never seen The Notebook. For some reason, as much as I love romantic films, and you've heard me talk about quite a few of them, I was never sold on it. I think that the only clips I've seen have been in compilation shows or as gifts. Anyway, Chris feels the same. As his mum, Dusty and Jamie are crying, here I'm reminded of when I went and saw E.T. at the grand old age of eight, he's wondering what exactly he is doing there. While they're at the cinema, Mike and Samantha are at a rather rough metal open mic night, try saying that two times fast, and she's getting shouted down by the audience because as far as they're concerned, she's the girl that poses wearing a whipped cream bra and suggestively eating a banana. Dusty is definitely up to something. He drives everyone back to Chris's house in his Prius, talking about how he drives it because he cares for the environment. He also reminds everyone about Chris's retainer, which does well in reminding Chris that all the time he's at home, he's going to be the person that he was before he left, not the man he became. Though, to be honest, the man he became is just a tiny bit of a douche nozzle. Chris drives Jamie home that night in his mum's car, but is still not making much in the way of progress with her. But then, to be fair, you have to question his motivation. Is she just a notch on the belt so he can get rid of his teenage demons? Or does she actually mean more to him? Anyway, he drives her home and then gets a call from Mike. It turns out that there is a riot going on at the metal bar, as the audience is seriously not impressed with Samantha but then you've heard her, so are you actually surprised at that? The next morning though, Chris is livid. Mike, being the irresponsible twit he constantly proves himself to be, left the windows of the Porsche open. It's the middle of winter, it's New Jersey, everything has iced up and the car will not start. He's got no alternative. He ends up cycling over to Jamie's house as he did when he was a student. It turns out he's decided to show a genuine side of himself and gift her with one of the love letters he wrote to her as a teenager that he never sent. However, when he arrives, Dusty is already there playing a song he wrote for Jamie and impressing everyone with his much improved guitar talent. The song he's performing is the same one he tried to impress her with 10 years earlier but failed completely, called When Jamie Smiles. Before he left for Jamie's, Chris told Mike to keep Samantha away. Unfortunately, he did not anticipate that she would actually hear what he said and show her ire very quickly once Chris had left the house. 
Chris isn't quite sure where he stands now seeing Jamie and Dusty and how everyone is so impressed with Dusty's attitude and behaviour and almost carelessly drops his gift on the table in Jamie's living room. He acknowledges at this point that he feels threatened by Dusty. Unfortunately, before anything can happen, a furious Samantha turns up in Chris and Mike's mum's car. She is jealous and angry, throwing insults at Jamie, who she sees as the competition and the woman that Chris is cheating on her with. Seriously, this woman has a strange view of her relationship with Chris and everything, to be fair. But I will definitely talk about that just a tiny bit later. Livid and feeling betrayed, though I'm not sure why, Samantha punches Chris in the throat before getting back into the Volvo, a more sensible family car you cannot get, and possibly unintentionally destroys the entire Christmas display at the Palomino's, and they take pride in this display every single year. This is a perfect example of hell hath no fury. That night, Samantha constantly calls Chris, trying to apologise for the damage she did. It appears that she previously had substance abuse issues and multiple others too, if her behaviour is anything to go by. But the damage is done and Chris is positive that he has totally lost any and all chances with Jamie. However, proving him completely wrong, Jamie shows up on his doorstep. It turns out she found the gift he dropped at her house, the love letter, before everything with Samantha happened. And they finally have a proper talk. The whole thing, as an observer, because that's what I am, is very confusing. You don't actually understand if she's telling him she's interested or is he still just her friend? They climb into bed together as they used to when they were teenagers because this is what she says, we can have a sleepover like we did when we were kids. That's a really helpful indicator right there, isn't it? And at this point, Chris's inner monologue is hilarious. It's as though he is just as unsure as I am, as the audience. Is he going to ruin everything if he takes her up on this invitation that may or may not be one? She keeps on saying things like, just like we used to, and then seemingly encouraging him to have sex. So confusing. The next day, baffled and wondering why Chris didn't take her up on her offer, though to be completely fair to him, it wasn't exactly the clearest one, Jamie goes to speak with Darla. At the same time, Chris goes to speak with Clark, while he's also getting his teeth looked at at the hospital. Remember, Clark's a dentist. As the pair are walking through the hospital, they come across Dusty with a nurse. Not so unusual given the fact that he's a paramedic, but he's singing Jamie's song to her and using the name Janice instead of Jamie. It turns out that Dusty is New Jersey's version of Chris, and he's actually playing with Jamie as revenge for her rejecting him back in high school. Despite everything that's happened, Chris knows that he can't leave New Jersey while Jamie is at risk of being used and possibly humiliated by a spiteful Dusty. So he forces Clark, who is driving him to the airport, to do a rather violent and definitely dangerous U-turn and drive him back to rescue Jamie. Though at this point, she's not exactly aware that she is the damsel in distress in this scenario. Dusty, Jamie and Jamie's students are at the church where Dusty is playing the role of happy-go-lucky butter-wouldn't-melt musician, all the while making faces behind Jamie's back and rubbing Chris up the wrong way, which eventually, <laughs> kind of predictably, leads to a fight. Jamie doesn't believe Chris when he tells her that Dusty is only after one thing, and that's revenge, especially as Dusty told her exactly the same thing about Chris. Frustrated, and realising that he's going to get absolutely nowhere, especially after causing the fight, Chris leaves. He is so drunk that he actually doesn't get too far, and I can see why this would be a thing. He gets on a bus and is thrown off it for disruptive behaviour. All the while, you see somebody who was sitting at the bus stop with him stealing his suitcase because he was so drunk he forgot he had it with him. He is conveniently, though, because this is a film, right outside the bar where Jamie works. He goes in and again tries to persuade her that he isn't wrong. Of course, by this time, Dusty actually sticks his own foot firmly in his mouth and down his throat. Jamie says she and Dusty are just fine and are friends. Dusty, having heard this, mutters, not for too long, I hope. What an absolute moron, seriously. Jamie thinks that Dusty is just nice. However, he thinks that she owes him for the song and everything else. 
Chris is very drunk and the confrontation with Jamie and the conversation with Dusty makes him a little bit more loose-lipped than usual. He tells Jamie that what she's done to him isn't fair. Why does he do this? That she's been teasing him for years and she was only the victim of that same treatment for three days. He then blows the whole thing and you can almost see the bomb explode their friendship wide open when he tells her that she can't cope as she peaked in high school. And Dusty was the moron? He's done it now, ruined the whole thing and he knows it. He heads back to LA, a far cry from how he arrived in New Jersey. There's no private jet, no first class. It's economy hell all the way. And when he gets back to his apartment, Samantha is there, being all Susie Homemaker. Seriously, does she not get anything in the way of blatant signals? Does she need diagrams? The last few days have been an emotional drain on Chris. He had to face things he hadn't acknowledged in over 10 years, and it wasn't the most pleasant experience. So he decides that he's going to do his best to make it that much worse with Samantha. He tells her that she needs to stop. He's not interested in her, and he's only actually interested in one girl. However, he's screwed up with her as well. Not the best thing to tell someone who is both emotionally unstable and carries a pretty strong taser. And this is something Chris very quickly learns. Even as he's telling Samantha that love isn't a game, he realises everything that he did wrong in New Jersey, and he knows that he has to make it up to Jamie before it's too late. He heads back to New Jersey as quick as the next flight can take him, goes straight to Jamie's house and apologises. As he's standing on the doorstep of the Palomino house, they kiss properly for the first time. Across the road, watching, a little bit voyeuristic if you ask me, three of Jamie's students are looking at everything as it plays out. The slightly nerdy boy presents the only girl in the group with a cookie, which she promptly shares with the other part of their trio. And at that point, the first nerdy boy realises he has just been neatly shuffled into the friend zone. As the credits roll, we're treated to a full performance of I Swear, apparently right from the mind of Ryan Reynolds. But then, having seen what he's done with most of his roles after this point, I don't doubt that one bit. I have to be honest, when I watched this film, and I think it's probably the tenth time or so, because... There is just something about Ryan Reynolds that is so likeable. I was at a loss as to what to say about Just Friends. In many ways, this is so similar to the comedic style in the American Pie series that it was a bit of a surprise not to see Stifler and the other characters enter into the fray. All that being said, this was a little milder. There was no real toilet humour no dog mess chocolates, no ejaculate in beer and no urine poured on anyone. What we got in Just Friends was, I want to say, a little more sophisticated, but it wasn't that either. Whenever I watch a film, I ask myself a few questions. Did I enjoy it? Yes, there were moments that made me laugh out loud and others that, as with many films, made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Will I watch it again? More than likely. To be fair, this is the 10th time, at least, that I have seen Just Friends over the years. I mean, it's been out for 16 years, so it's not as though it's been a film that's only been out for a few months. The story is sort of sweet, and it's been made the way it is, probably because of the decade it was written and produced in. Not that there's anything wrong with that. If it were remade, would anything change? If the question was, do I think it should be remade, then my answer would be an absolute and outright no. But as they're currently reshooting She's All That and have remade quite a few films over the last few years, it's possible that this would happen at some point. If it were remade, I think that there are a few things that wouldn't make the cut. The first is Samantha's mental instability. I think that there'd be they'd probably be a little bit more careful with how they do it, or maybe they'd just write her out altogether. Being honest, the only purpose her character served was to get him to New Jersey in the first place. She was kind of like unfunny comic relief. Him getting to New Jersey could happen any other way. The second would be a scene when Dusty, Chris, 
Chris's mum and Jamie are at the cinema watching The Notebook. While everyone is in tears watching the end of the film, at, at least I think it's the end of the film, as I said, I haven't seen it. Chris says, this is so gay. And right in front of him is a gay couple enjoying a kiss. This is the one scene I watched and I said without any hesitation at all, that wouldn't pass in a script today and I don't think I need to explain why. I'm not going to recast. I know that if they did, they would pick some TikToker or a YouTuber or something to play someone in the cast. But I will stick with what we already have. I will say that it was surprising to find out that apparently Bradley Cooper was originally considered for the role of Dusty Dinkleman that Chris Klein eventually won. And I'm not sure if he would have been able to play Dusty as a weedy, dishevelled teen. Mostly because I don't actually remember, and I can't remember, any film where he hasn't dominated and played the lead role. Okay. No, I, I really can't. I mean, even as Rocket Raccoon, you know that that's Bradley Cooper. Would I give this film 10 out of 10? No. But then I don't know if I have ever given a film 10 out of 10. Many have been close. I mean, Endgame is incredible, but I don't think it has. it is a 10 out of 10, purely because they got rid of two of my favourite characters. The film's amazing, but personal feeling does determine the the score you give it there's no other way around it unless it's your job it's a personal view it's fun it's light-hearted even though the fat suit makes me probably more angry than chris's character is whenever anyone mentions the weight he's lost but it's probably closer to a five and a half or maybe a six ryan reynolds has the cheeky sarcastic thing down pat and i love him for it but Just Friends is not my favourite film that he stars in. I think that probably would go to The Proposal or Deadpool. No, probably The Proposal. If you want to listen to what I thought about The Proposal, I have a review of that one too. Enjoy great food and interesting dinner conversation, then this is perfect for you. Join Nydia, Dana and Cindy on their journey to find the best dinner conversation to pair with the food and wine courses. This is Wine, Dine, and Storytime. I'm Nydia. I'm Dana. I'm Cindy. And we're your hosts. Have you ruined a family gathering by asking what wine pairs well with eating a husband? Are you the CEO of TMI? Have you ever been kicked under the table because you brought up your favorite dinner topic, atrocities throughout history? Then this podcast is perfect for you. Each week, Dana and I share stories based on topics that include true crime, historical shenanigans, unexplained mysteries, and all things fascinating, while our amateur chef Cindy prepares themed dinners and pairs wines based on those topics. Find us, the Wine, Dine, and Storytime podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a follow. So that's Wine, Dine, and Storytime. Find it where you can find all good podcasts after you've finished listening to this episode. My viewing menu for this week is a little bit reduced, if only because I'm actually releasing two episodes in a matter of days. More about why that is a little bit later. By the time you hear this, I will already have viewed the penultimate episode of hopefully not the only season of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier over on Disney+. This show is proving to be a bit of an emotional roller coaster for me, but if you're watching, then you do not need me to tell you that. Another thing that's on my playlist for this week is the brand new seventh season of New Zealand series The Broken Wood Mysteries. I've been watching this show since the very beginning. Seriously, every single episode is amazing and I really love it. Though I have to say I wish there were more than four to six episodes in a season because no sooner has it started than I feel it's already over. The fact that we have had a new season in this Covid world though is to be appreciated so that's what I'm going to focus on. This week, the book thing has been a stumper for me, in all honesty. I have started a few books by new authors and struggled to read more than a few pages or chapters. I did finish a book, 
However, it wasn't in a genre I particularly wanted to talk about. And as it's a preview, I've already posted the full review on Goodreads. So it was there before the book actually launched. If you want to follow me over on Goodreads, then let me know and I can point you in the right direction. I'm constantly over there with new books that I've reviewed and putting detailed commentary up because that's what it's there for. So where did that leave me? Well, it left me with three unfinished books that I am going to have to work hard to read through in the coming weeks. And I am so far behind on my Goodreads challenge that I wince when I think of it. Seriously, I think I've got about six books that I got to read in the next two weeks so I catch up. I decided to look away from the what I need to finish list and instead look towards the what I have read and loved and the what I am really looking forward to camps. That means this week I am actually going to be talking about some of the books I love and a few that I can't wait to read, possibly in that order. First on my list, if you didn't realise it already, then where have you been, is contemporary women's fiction, which is still referred to by a huge number of people, sometimes me, as chiclet. There are a few authors that are in this category I buy without a single hesitation. In fact, there are a few that go on my pre-order list at the moment they're announced. Honestly, my pre-read list is pretty large. The three top authors in this category are Jill Mansell. I've talked about her books. I seriously love something with interesting characters, entwined storylines, laughter, tears, and everything in between. My favourite of hers is To the Moon and Back. I cannot recommend that one enough, and I have reviewed it on this show. I'll post the link in the comments box. The second author on the list is Paige Toon. Almost every single one of her stories seems to be about someone who has been briefly mentioned in another book. Not every single one, though, but many of them. And when you read this story, you think, wow, I remembered him or her, and I wanted to know more. Thank you. Her books tend to be based in Australia or the UK, but one of my favourites, If You Could Go Anywhere, which came out in 2019, made me cry so much. It's based primarily in Italy. When I read her books, I find myself remembering the places I've been and longing to visit the places I've never seen. She has a fantastic way with words and I love every single moment of reading them, which is why they're on my reread list. I debated quite a long time who to add in third place because there are two people fighting for the spot. Jenny Colgan, whose book Rosie Hopkins' Sweet Shop of Dreams is so good that even my sister, who isn't a huge fan of this particular genre, loved it. Or Erin Green. She's a relatively new kid on the block, or at least she is to me, but her books talk to me. Her latest book, From Shetland with Love, is out at the end of May and has been on my pre-order list since the end of last year. As I said, my pre-order list is long. Now we've taken a look at contemporary romance, what about historical? And this is a whole different kettle of fish. Instead of really studying the depth and development of all manner of relationships, I've always found that historical romance sort of falls into one of two camps, the steamy or the staid. I have read a fair number of both over the last few years. I read the entire Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn and found it to actually be rather dull. Remember, this is my personal opinion. I also read a few books by Stephanie Lawrence and the entirety of the Wallflowers series by Lisa Kleypas. But I have to be honest, there are a few historical authors I will always be loyal to, even though one has stopped writing historical fiction and the other has sadly passed away. Those two authors are Julie Garwood and Joanna Lindsay. Joanna Lindsay is responsible for the extensive, seriously extensive, Mallory series, which is now, I think, the last book was part of the second generation. And Julie Garwood wrote what remains probably my favourite historical romance novel of all time, Ransom. If you love reading about Highland warriors, love a bit of a bodice ripper, and like the strong silent type, then Ransom is definitely the book for you. Fantasy. Oh, the places I could take this one particular genre, and there are quite a lot. I could look at the Highlander series by Karen Marie Moaning with the enigmatic time-travelling Fay Highlanders, 
or I could head over to the shelves stacked pretty high with the Dark Hunter novels by Sherilyn Kenyon or McQueen or whatever she is called today. However, that's not where my brain takes me when I think fantasy. I am immediately transported to the world of gods and demons as created by the clever words of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, with novels such as Good Omens, Nation and American Gods, or the mythological music created by Madeleine Miller with The Song of Achilles and the incredibly heartbreaking Circe. Science fiction has admittedly never been a favoured genre, but there are a couple of masters I turn to when I'm in that frame of mind. Philip K. Dick is the creator behind the novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's possible you've never heard the title, but you will have definitely heard of the film that was inspired by it, for it is Blade Runner. The book leaves a bit more to the imagination, and though it's short, it's masterfully written. The other author, of course, is Douglas Adams, the genius who gave us The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. All I can say is read it, please. When it comes to classics, I don't know if I would say I'm a purist or not. And this is where I get confusing. I spent five years studying for a degree in English Lit while working full-time and also functioning as a carer for my terminally ill grandmother. During that time, I read what many would consider to be the best that literature has to offer. I would not necessarily agree with them, if I'm being completely honest. I am not, repeat, not a fan of the Bronte sisters, now, I am anticipating many people coming for me with pitchforks when they take that in, but I just can't help it. Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre are pretty much compulsory reading for any English literature student, especially in the UK. And they were two books I can happily say I have no intention of ever reading again. However, Jane Austen, now she's my girl. Seriously, Pride and Prejudice and North Anger Abbey are incredible satire, a fantastic view of society in the 1800s. They weren't to be taken seriously, they weren't written to be taken seriously, and I still chuckle when I read them. They were every bit a perfectly written piss take. If you're not up for reading the book Pride and Prejudice, then watch the 1995 BBC series. Do not, I repeat, do not think that watching the 2005 travesty gives you insight into the book. It doesn't. Another rant, courtesy of Ray. Another book that I love, and I still have the copy I purchased when I was doing my GCSEs, so we're talking 30 years ago, is E.M. Forster's A Room With A View. It doesn't matter how many times I read it, it still hits me. Lucy and George are two of the purest souls, and I love them. The 1985 Merchant Ivory film starring Helena Bonham Carter and Maggie Smith is also incredible. So beautiful. The scenery is so amazingly gorgeous. So, that's my list of recommended authors for this time. I know, even as I say this and look over at my bookshelves, there are loads more I could easily pick up and say, you have to read this and this. And what about this one? It's amazing. But I limited myself for a reason because I could go on forever. At some point, I will definitely be going through the YA shelves I have stacked too deep and too high with books from everyone from C.S. Lewis to Holly Black. And I'll talk about those too because they deserve their own time. If you think I've missed someone off the list and you want to recommend them to me, please send me a message. I am always on the lookout for new authors and always asking for them. I have been trying for the last few years to add a couple of new ones to my regular reading roster, and that isn't gonna change. Last week, I didn't talk much, if at all, about the week and the toll it had taken on me, instead promising I would talk about it when I recorded my next episode. So here it is in all its unfiltered, unedited, unless I click too much with my mouth or say, um, about 20,000 times, glory. Almost two weeks ago as I record this, we celebrated Easter, along with something resembling the pseudo end of lockdown especially if you're like me and have been living the life of a shut-in for the last 12 months. What that meant for me is that I was invited to some outdoor family gatherings. This is the first time I have seen much of my family since Christmas, including my niece, who's home from college, and my middle nephew has been to Sandhurst in recent weeks for his interview as he plans to join the army. 
he actually is really invested in serving his country. So I'm very proud of him for that, to be honest. Anyway, we're all sitting around the two fires eating macaroni and cheese and I really need to get the recipe for that from my brother's partner because it was so good. When the subject turns to weddings, I'm not going to talk about some of this as it's not my story to tell, but things turn to my niece and I, the only single women in the group below 50. My mum is single, but she's in her late 60s and has already been married, so she apparently doesn't count. My niece, being 20 and therefore the font of all knowledge and everything else, pipes up with, well, who would want that? At this point, she directs her gaze and one hand in my direction when they can have this, directing attention to herself. I'm not denying my niece is very pretty. She has blonde hair, a dancer's body, and she's 20. But to be referred to as that was both insensitive and totally unnecessary. At that point, I decided I wasn't going to talk anymore because just it was just too exhausting. And I, A, couldn't be bothered, and B, could feel my mood sinking. The next day, Easter Sunday, was another day of gathering together, and by this point I felt about as keen on participating as I feel about a pap smear. In other words, not unless I have to. I went, I fixed my niece's computer, though I really wanted to tell her to stick it up her rear, and then, when the day came to an end, I was sad that it had felt so forced, but also relieved that there was still one day left of the long weekend in the form of Bank Holiday Monday. Monday rose bright and early, thank you so much Darcy for a 4am wake up call on my day off, and I had no energy for anything. I had a virtual coffee with a friend at about 11 and being honest, that was it. I lay on the sofa and I slept. I was mentally and physically exhausted. Unfortunately, this has been an emotion I've been carrying with me for the last 12 days and I just can't seem to shake it. I have moments where I feel as though I have energy and motivation and that's when I start writing script and then it's as though it's vanished in a puff of invisible smoke and that's the point this week where I realised the episode was not going to get out on Thursday no matter how hard I tried. Granted, there are a few other circumstances that will make this a bit worse. Last Wednesday was my dad's birthday and he would have turned 70 and he's actually been dead longer than he was alive which is really sad and I know that this should help me to put things in perspective and be grateful but when family who should care about me no matter what I look like or what size clothes I wear refer to me with a tone that almost sounds like contempt it's not easy. The thing is my weight has been an issue for longer than I can remember. I've mentioned before I have eating issues. I've always struggled to lose more than a few pounds to get motivated to find that endorphin rush people say they get when they exercise but what I look like doesn't change who I am as a person. I would do absolutely anything for anyone in my family and my friend group, and they know this, but the knowledge that my entire family found what my niece said to be acceptable, that they laughed when she said it, that makes me wonder what they say about me behind my back, that makes what she said a joke to them. Does it affect my mental health? Yes, it does 100%. Does it impact on my feelings when it comes to interacting with them? Yes, it makes me dread the idea of spending time with them. Do I feel as though my feelings are inconsequential? Yes, it makes me believe that they don't give two figs about what my thoughts and feelings are when it comes to what they say about me. Do I think that they care? This is probably the most important one. No, I don't. As far as they're concerned, at least if their words and actions are anything to go by, I'm at the bottom of the priority pile as far as they're concerned. I'm a useful tool to be pulled out when a computer breaks, something needs proofreading, a phone needs upgrading, or they need a document translating. But that's it. Does this make me cry? Yes, a lot. You can probably hear in my my voice that I'm really struggling. So what's the take home from this? You can't choose your family? I guess. I love my family to pieces and, as I've already said, will do anything for them. But now I know where I am when it comes to the list of what they'd save in a fire, probably below the multitude of laptops, gaming consoles and my cat. Ultimately, the, the message is, the lesson to learn is, I need to start looking after myself. If I have 
had enough. I need to not be afraid to say so. When it came to Easter Sunday, I was contemplating faking a stomach bug because the day before had soured me so much. And I should have followed that gut instinct. I should have stayed home. I know that everyone has their issues, be it with family, friends, work, colleagues. But you have to put yourself first because sometimes you are the only one who will. Again, it's about taking those moments for you. Step back, take perspective, meditate, dance to your favourite song, spend a few more minutes in the shower. Do something that will give you a few extra moments to shore yourself up. And then when you've done what you have to do, give yourself time to heal. Yeah, it was another deep one this week. Hopefully none of you experienced that, but I'm sure that people have problems with friends, family, colleagues, loved ones, and it can be draining. Don't forget, there are only three more episodes left after this one. And here's a clue. The next one features someone who has since played an iconic female diarist. So that's it for this episode, and I hope you enjoyed the listen. I release a new one every single week, so if you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes and Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast. Well, I definitely need another cup of coffee as I have not had enough today. So I'm going to head out to the kitchen and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.